0: The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association takes this time to thank our 2023 corporate sponsors. Bristol-Myers Squibb, Cytokinetics, Biomarin, Tania Therapeutics, Edgewise. Therapeutics and Imbria and thank you to our 2023 annual patient meeting sponsors Bristol Myers Squibb Biomarin, Boston Scientific Cytokinetics Tenaya Therapeutics Edgewise Therapeutics Rocket Pharmaceuticals and Alnylam Pharmaceuticals with additional funding provided by the JT Babbitt Foundation
1: Good morning, everybody. It is July 7th, 2023. We have a new platform. I'm Lisa Salberg. This is Tales from the Heart, and we are trying a new software package today called StreamYard, and we are simulcasting on our Facebook private group, our Facebook page, and our Twitter account. In the future, we will also be using YouTube and our LinkedIn account for Tales from the Heart. Today, I am doing something a little different. Um, Our regularly scheduled guest today was Dr. Harry Lever, and he was unfortunately um, detained with a, a little bit of a medical issue. He's fine, but he couldn't join us today. So I decided that we had a little technical difficulty back on June 16th. We lost the content, so I thought we would redo June 16th which is the anniversary of my sister's passing. And I took the time to tell a little bit of a backstory about the HCMA and what we do. So today I have invited Joey Graham, who will introduce himself and explain exactly why he's getting the chance to interview me instead of me interviewing somebody else. So Joey, how did you land in this seat?
0: It's been a fast ride. It really has, Lisa. Um, I was just looking the other day because I got my actual date for my surgery at Cleveland Clinic. in August and I thought, gosh, these four hundred days, my whole life has changed. I went from having a job in sales with broadcast background. I left that. We had just built a brand new house and we're like, I can't keep up with this house. With this condition anymore, we sold it. The market changed. The finance rates; everything was going crazy (laughs) in that time. So we're building a new house, as you can see on the board back there. Nineteen days for my countdown. I have a broadcast background. I've done news my whole life. I started right out of school, and in my hometown, I love to tell people stories. I love to tell the truth. I feel like the truth has a place in our society to keep us balanced. And I ran across our actual HCMA Facebook page when I was so desperate after being diagnosed and the people, a couple people on there just really embraced me right out of the box and just started giving me feedback and kind of took me in and it changed my whole mindset. And I thought, I want to be a part of this. I don't know how to be a part of it, but I want to be. So I immediately became a member and, and you and I just, well, I started vlogging. Remember, I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to vlog and you reached out and said, let's do this together so we can work in tandem and share facts and make sure that everything is shared with people in an educational way. And and that's sort of how I ended up here. I started editing our podcast because in my previous job, I edited podcasts. And so that's where we are today. I still do news as my real job. (laughs) I'm a news anchor and reporter, but I really look forward to getting together with you. It's always we always laugh. I don't know if there's a time that we've spoken when we haven't cried together and share information on what has become such an enormous voice and empowerment movement for folks that are suffering from hypertrophic cardiomyopathy.
1: That's a great explanation. So um, we started doing some work on the podcast, sharing your personal journey and then you start. You took over as editing the podcast and now we're kicking it up another notch so there's going to be a little bit more producing and a little bit more finesse put into this mostly i have just put on a microphone and started ranting and talking with people. We're going to get a little bit more organized as we move into our fourth season of Tales from the Heart. So that's going to be a lot of a
0: lot of fun. We're growing. We are. That's what I like is that we can see the growth of the organization. And as we look out to October, the masquerade and all of the, the stuff we're doing out then, this is such a professional operation with such a small group of people that are working in the background. And I think it's important that we remember the history of how we got started, because if you would have told me two years ago, I'd be part of this movement. And how how many years back would we have to go for you? And what, and, and what got you going in this?
1: It kind of started 27 years ago, but it really started before I was even born. I'm going to tell a little bit of a backstory. I've told the story before, but my hope is that we'll just share this story going forward. Not that I don't want to tell my past and my story, but um, there's so much going on in the current. It's just having a good understanding of the past, I think is important. Yeah. So 1953, my grandfather suffers a cardiac arrest on the eve of my father's high school graduation. He came home from a date with my mom and his mother, his mother was freaking out. My grandmother was freaking out because his father was ill, not breathing, She was trying to shake him awake, but he wouldn't wake up. And my father tried to do rudimentary CPR, but it was 1953 and he was on a bed. And there was data out there that if you compress the chest, that should help. But there wasn't a lot out there. So unfortunately, my grandfather died at the age of 43. And we didn't have a name for what he had. We just knew he had a bad heart and a heart murmur and was told to stay away from coffee. Like that was the big. You know, here's your medicine. Don't drink coffee. So he drank wow. Postum. And if any, anybody knows what Postum is, you're probably not under 60. Uh, <laughs> and and I'm enough. under 60. I barely know it. But my grandmother introduced me to it. She always kept, she always kept a jar around because I think it reminded her of him. My aunt, his sister, Aunt Alice, she was, from all accounts, a lovely woman. She died in about 1963. I was not born yet. She um, had a stroke and we believe it was secondary to to HCM and she died at about 52. So -hmm. quite young. So we lost her. Then my uncle was young. He was in his early twenties and he was being seen at a hospital in New York and they diagnosed him with idiopathic hypertrophic subaortic stenosis, IHSS, the old name of HCM. So um, that was the name on the thing that had been chasing our family. And we didn't know shortly thereafter, my sister Lori, who was born in 1959 with an atrial septal defect. So a hole in the top part of her heart, um, top chambers. And uh, in 1964 ish, um, that was corrected through a surgery at St. Joe's hospital in orange, New Jersey. Um, I have the bill. It was $700 for open heart surgery.
0: Wow. Was was that a? I mean, was that a lot, or is that cheaper than you thought it would be?
1: I I thought it was incredibly cheap for open heart surgery on like a brand new thing. I'll find that. I'll put it up online. I I actually have the. It's a handwritten bill. Oh my god! And it's just like heart surgery, seven (laughs) hundred dollars. Yeah. It's like so random. So um that was Lori as a little one. As she was an early teen, they also diagnosed her IHSS. And then in nineteen eighty, in a school physical, a murmur was detected in me. And then I was diagnosed at the age of twelve. So um when I was first diagnosed, I was told, Oh yeah, there's really not much we can do for this. CPR probably won't save you. Um have a nice day. And I will never forget those words and the, and just how cavalierly he said them. He didn't mean to be awful. He was a nice guy. We we remain friends to this day, but it was, he was not a pediatric cardiologist. And it was kind of an odd way of telling a kid, well, don't worry about it. There's not much you can do anyway, (laughs) which in 1980 was actually the truth. So I thank him for the truth, but it was a little hard to hear at 12. So things were quiet for a while in the family and then they weren't. We kind of start in 1990 where everything started getting a little bit chaotic with HCM and our family. It was May of 1990 and I developed a toothache two days before my wedding. And it was not just like a little toothache. It was, damn, I have a toothache. So I went for an emergency root canal two days before my wedding. Nice. My biggest concern was, will my face swell and will you be able to see it in the pictures? Right, okay, course. this is, I was not thinking of what are the implications on right. thing to my heart. But it turned out that I contracted endocarditis during that dental wow. procedure. And that led to an infection that endocarditis is a bacterial infection that grows inside your heart because it likes warm, moist areas to grow. And the bacteria actually grows on your mitral valve. And then I lost little clots of that. So I started to have uh, TIAs and a few strokes, a few strokes, not one, a few. I never actually got a total number on them. There's damage in, in several areas of my brain. So anytime I forget anything, I say, but I have brain damage.
0: It's just a right. joke. Only we can get away with jokes. Right. A little, little dark, but we can do it if we've been there.
1: It, it, yeah. <laughs> We're we'll allowed to make jokes if we've been there. Yep. And I've been there. So that that happened early on. And I ended up with a Hickman catheter. So it goes in your chest and it gives me antibiotics for seven weeks. And the day I had it removed, it was also right around my birthday. So we had it removed. I was finally feeling a little bit better The blindness will never resolve from my left eye. And I have a little bit of weakness on my left side, but I was feeling good. And we went out to a comedy club, went to Rascals Comedy Club in West Orange, New Jersey. And Rosie O'Donnell was the MC. Oh, fun. Yeah, it was it was early in her career. We did that. We came home and there was a message on my answering machine and it was my mom. And my mom was very upset that my uncle Tom had just died in Montana. He'd moved to Montana in the late 70s and he had a cardiac arrest in a parking lot at a, an outdoorsman show. And I believe it was Hamilton, Montana. How old? How old? He was 47. Wow. So he was pretty young. His yeah. kids were still in high school. When I was in high school, my, my cousin was in the military at the time. So they went home to, to bury dad. And, and that was really sad. My grandmother went out. My father went out. And uh, it was it was reality moment like HCM had hit twice that summer. I got really sick from a complication related to HCM. He dies. We're paying attention. My sister, Lori, had been struggling with some exacerbating symptoms. She that back in 1991 got her first pacemaker as part of a clinical protocol at the NIH. And then uh, the idea was to use dual chamber pacing to regress hypertrophy and to remove obstruction. Those were the two things that they were trying to do. Neither of them really worked out to how it was sold in the original protocol. However, there is a role for dual chamber pacing in those who are obstructed. So it has a little bit of help. You know, it's a little bit of a treatment, but not for many. But my sister started to develop atrial fibrillation after her pacemaker was put in. But she was only in her early 30s, so it's highly unusual. But she just kept kind of progressing in her disease. And it was getting worse. And she was hospitalized multiple times. She was in and out of AFib. She was on a lot of different medications. About a year into her device, they wanted me to get a device. I'm like, she's got lots of trouble from her. I don't know that I want, one. It's a little problematic. <laughs> yeah. You're like, oh, no, 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 no. She's an outlier. Nobody else is having these problems. And you should be just fine. Okay. I should be just fine. That's what we're thinking.
0: Are you thinking, though, at this point, beyond that you just have heart problems in your family, like we're one of those families that are, you know, we wouldn't know for DNA checks and all that for years to come. But what are you thinking in your head that we just have heart problems in our family?
1: I took them as an annoyance in the family history. I didn't take them as seriously as I probably should have at that point. I never knew my grandfather, so he was just a picture on the wall and some stories that were hard to tell. Things were, you know, I didn't define myself as a cardiac patient. I told people I had a heart murmur and I couldn't do certain exercises. That was it.
0: An innocent heart murmur, because that's what I was repeatedly told. I hate that term.
1: I like inconsequential, I think is more accurate, but I do not believe that innocent murmur should be used to describe the murmur of an HCM heart. Yeah. So I was told that I had a murmur and a known cause and the cause of my murmur was IHSS. So they didn't call it an innocent murmur. They just called it a murmur and IHSS, but nobody knew what the hell that meant. So
0: So we're talking devices now at this point.
1: So I have a pacemaker at the ripe old age of 23 and I am the youngest one by a long shot in the pacemaker clinic. (laughs) Um, And they all looked at me kind of crazy when I would walk in and I have some really old technology. We used to take like an actual, handheld phone and you would plug in your your um you put electrodes on, you'd plug them into this box, you would take the phone, you would put the phone on the box, and your pacemaker would transmit through the phone lines.
0: Like a dial phone, like, like a, a
1: dial up phone. Wow. Like even before modems and stuff. So it was really kind of okay. quite advanced technology for yeah. the time. Yeah. So I had that for a number of years and things were relatively quiet. From 90, well, Lori, was in and out of the hospital a couple of times. I was in and out of the hospital a couple of times. But generally, it seemed quite normal and quiet. And then um, 1995 happened. And this is where my sister goes into advanced heart failure, but nobody notices it. They over-medicate her. Nobody's paying attention. Nephrology is not talking to cardiology. Cardiology in New Jersey is leaning on cardiology at the National Institute of Health. National Institute of Health is pointing back home and there's chaos and nobody's taken responsibility for this 36-year-old woman who's struggling. And my sister was on high-dose amnioterone. She was on Norpace. She was on double diuretics and she plummeted her potassium and had a cardiac arrest on the morning of June 12th, 1995 she stayed in a coma and she was pronounced dead on June 16th. And that opened Pandora's box to say, what the hell happened here? How does a 36 year old die? I'm thinking naively that each generation we should live longer and better
0: with, right. with technology. technology. Yeah.
1: And she threw my equation completely out the window. And I was eight months pregnant with my daughter. She had two children who were going to eventually come and live with my husband and I for a number of years. Wow. And like, there's, there was a lot going on here. So I started to do some research and as they say, the rest is, is history, but we're here to talk about history today. And the world changed for me the week of June 12th, 1995. And I think it kind of changed for everybody else in the HCM world too, but I could never have imagined.
0: No, I mean, uh, looking back, this place kind of relied on this place and this place relied on this place. And as patients, we just trust that, right? We, we we trust that everybody's communicating and that we're getting the best advice. When I look back on my journey, that's it really mentally took part of me away looking back on that journey because I trusted the system at the time and didn't really question and i've learned that we should have a voice through all of this so i would assume at this point with lori lisa has some questions that she's writing down and ready to ask where was
1: i at that point in my life so i took an unusual course (laughs) career-wise um i originally started out as a computer program operator, and then JCL programmer for an insurance company, Fireman's Fund Insurance Company. And in, um, we were in Parsippany at the point. And I was in the computer room, writing code, fixing hardware, working on an IBM mini mainframe. And I was, I was doing everything from hardware management to software management for a relatively large insurance company at a very young age. I had some very unique skills. I loved computers. I loved data management. So I jumped into that but I was looking for something else. Um, a little bit more eh, permanent. I was, I was a permanent temporary, which was Ah. weird at the time. Um, so I wanted to like go work for somebody. Well, I go to a recruiting agency and I'm like, this is what I want to do. And the owner of the company went, you do not belong behind computers. You belong talking to people. You're a people person. I'm like, yeah, I like people, but you know, computers don't talk back. Like you can just tell them what to do when they do their job. So it was kind of a little bit of a joke and I was recruited into the recruiting firm (laughs) and they're like, no, 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 you need to work for us. I'm like, okay, which opened my doors to a lot more in the HR space. So I was an external recruiter Loved it, really, really, really enjoyed that work and meeting all those people and those companies and seeing how each structure worked. And so I really got involved with like organizational development. How do you build up your computer operation systems and data managers? And I really got into that. But then I decided I wanted to be more part of a company. I didn't want to set something up for somebody else and populate it and run away. I wanted to be part of something bigger. Yes. So I took a job internal HR for a company that sold antique and classic automotive parts for American cars. Cool. <laughs> Cause that makes all the sense in the world. Well, That's it sounds today. fun
0: to me. I like, I mean, that sounds fun.
1: It was a lot of fun for many, many years. I worked for two very eclectic gentlemen, Fred and Dan Cantor. Thanks guys who gave me some space to build out a nonprofit when I was still working in HR So I was with them for 18, 19 years in the capacity of human resource management. And I also had the opportunity to do health plan administration there. So we were a small company. I was not particularly thrilled with where health insurance was going back in the 80s. Right. I I was aggravated at how it was developing then. And right now it's, I'm (laughs) sorry to say I did not solve that problem. It got worse. (laughs) It got way worse, people, but it was bad. But our prices were going up 33% a quarter hmm. in 88, 89. A quarter. A quarter. Up 30. Every We would be billed quarterly. And each bill was going up by about 30 to 35%. So I'm like, this is ridiculous. We could spend this money much more efficiently. So I looked into something called self-insurance. So we bought into a network and we bought stop-loss insurance on individuals and stop-loss insurance on the plans. And we hired the administrator to actually process claims Mm. and follow a policy and provide healthcare to our staff. It was a novel idea. I tell you, we actually put the doctor and the patient at the front and we beat the market 17 out of 18 years. That's awesome. And that was pretty, it was pretty cool to be able to write the policy, manage the policy and coordinate and help patients, meaning the staff, Find the care that met their needs the best, and I, I really enjoyed that part of my work. I do miss part of that, although the world has changed exponentially since I left that world in 2005.
0: But so- I, the skill set that you bring from knowing both sides of that business, I this organization is so lucky that you had that seat and position and know the navigational ways around problems and that no doesn't always mean no and yes doesn't always mean yes and and for us to have you as our leader for this organization with that skill set i think we we talk about prescription drugs all the time we've talked about generic prescription drugs all Mm -hmm. the time and you you bring a very unique skill set to us as our leader, and and so I'm glad you spent that time in that space, and you are still you are still fighting. This is a this beta is a, test.
1: This is this is a test.
0: Only a test.
1: Only well, it's, it's a real test. <laughs> we'll be graded on this one.
0: Grading on a curve.
1: That's exactly it. So my background was HR. My experience is dealing with people, and conflict, and resolution. So that's the other side of HR and finding the right people for the right jobs at the right time with the right set of of skills, ability and nuance. So I like people and I like to try to keep people safe and alive. This is this is like really kind of important. I was there from 88 to 2005. I actually started that job on 8, 8 You don't forget that. Um, and my birthday was the very next day. So that was kind of fun too. That's the early career and the mindset that I came from, which was how do you structure teams? How do you get things done? How do you create processes that make sense? So I took all of that and, and I really wanted one thing more than anything else. And that's to keep patients safe, to keep, family safe and to make sure nobody else had to deal with the loss of a loved one too soon from HCM. Like my family has had to do over
0: and, and over, over and over
1: and, you know. over and over. That's the why. And that's the, you know, people say, like, are you a doctor? Are you a nurse? Nope. Not a doctor, not a nurse. Don't play one well on TV. Don't want their jobs. I think they are amazing individuals. They provide a wonderful skill set and they are of great service to the community. And I love taking complicated problems that I know are complicated and calling up my friends and say, here, here's a mask, go figure it out. And (laughs) that's what they do. Or here is a complicated family history. I'm really worried about A, B and C, please take care of them. And we hand them off to the next person. Anthony, thank you for um, commenting on this because you're the first comment that I've seen pop up in this new nice. stream. Nice. And thank you for using the right tools. You received a parking ticket on 8888. <laughs> Don't forget <laughs> it. <laughs> well, I was starting a new job and I was very excited on that day. So, I'm sorry that you had a bad experience on that day. So, that's kind of the family and the who I was to to start doing what I do.
0: One of the things I admire about you the most is that you are in a seat where you are able to help facilitate change. I look at some of the people you bring onto this podcast. And even some of their family before was involved in this fight. That's how long it's been going on. But it's finally like culminating into where we're making a difference and we're putting pen to paper and exciting announcements are, are coming up. In fact, I remember I, I stick on this thing and one of the first podcasts in January, you said 2023 is going to be a really, really big year for HCM and we're halfway through the year and i feel like there are some announcements that are still out there coming that are pretty exciting
1: there's a lot happening there's new drug trials we we've received a new sponsor this week it's a company nobody's probably heard of yet and they're developing the third generation of myosin inhibitors and we're starting now and they have some pretty exciting stuff coming we have genetic therapies coming later this year. There's there's no lack of invention and development and new thinking. We're getting smarter, we're using all of our resources and the care of those with HCM in the future is going to be more complicated to pick the right tool from the toolbox for each patient,
0: More choices, yeah. But we got choices,
1: but we're going to have more choices and we're going to we're hopefully going to live better lives.
0: Talk about the centers of excellence and how those happen, because I remember when I first joined one of the first things you and I believe it was Sabrina's was like, you've got to get to a center of excellence. Joey, that is where they have the most knowledge. That is where you have your higher volume surgeons and doctors dealing with this. How did all that come into existence, the Centers of Excellence?
1: It's a great question and a timely one because like most programs we have, things evolve. I was a patient at the National Institute of Health from about 1987 through probably 1995, six, and then everything kind of fell apart. My sister was a patient there, they had a clinic, they ran it a couple of days a week and every patient with HCM from around the country would go there because nobody else knew what to do with us and they were trying to figure it out. And there were some amazing people there in the day, amazing. Eugene Brunwald was one of the ones who started the program. Dr. Morrow created the myectomy. Uh, unfortunately, I never got a chance to meet him. He died um, back in 88. So um, there we are in 88 again. <laughs> um, so there was there was a lot going on at nih at that point and there were a couple of other programs around the country that had programs for hcm and were doing the surgery that they were taught by dr morrow dr marin was there at the time but then there was a big shift and they went a different route and they got rid of some existing staff including bill roberts who we know passed about a month ago, dear friend of mine as well. He was at the NIH back in the day and they had a really amazing program, but it broke and they brought in some other people who basically shattered the program. And, and because of the actions of a few people, Mm -hmm. the whole program was kind of destroyed. It's not that an institution, institutions are great, but people make up institutions. And if you get a bad egg in there, it can really damage the reputation of an institution as well as a program so the NIH program kind of died, and and I might have actually sued the United States of America for fraud and misrepresentation. Wow! And it was kind of a big deal. And that program was no longer available for us.
0: So then there was nothing, right?
1: Cleveland had a small program, Mayo had a small program, Mark Sherrod had a small program in New York City at St. Luke's at the time. Christine Seidman was doing some work up in Boston on genetics. It was kind of early days, things were coagulating, but there wasn't what we know today as centers of excellence. They were doing their best to cohesively work together. They were put, pulling their team together, but they weren't formalized programs, but they became that way. 1996, I met both Mark in New York, and Harry Lever, Barry Marin. Sorry, Harry Lever was Cleveland Clinic. Barry Marin was then Minneapolis Heart moved to tufts moved to leahy there were a number of really smart physicians who were trying to build up practice and i started this new thing it was called a website, <laughs> and you had to go to a web browser to put in a url you yeah. had to start with www dot
0: But you were a computer coder, so yay for us.
1: There you go. (laughs) So I took my geeky computer girl place, and I grabbed a book about HTML programming, which was about three inches thick. And I sat down with the book, and I figured out how to program my first website in 1995. Wow. There was no WYSIWYG back then. It It was hard code. And I really enjoyed that as like a little side gig. Cause I got to get my computer chops back on. <laughs> so um, we developed the website ninety five ninety six, and I started relationship building with some of these docs. And I would, people would say, where do I go for care? I'm like, well, I know this guy here and that guy there. And people were getting on airplanes and going to these people that I had found and vetted and said, I, I think they know what they're talking about based on everything that I'm learning. So here, here's somebody who may have some value to you. So from, like, 96 to 2001 two, we were referring a lot to Mayo in Cleveland because they had really robust surgical programs. When I started working with each of them, they were doing about 25 myectomies a year each, and now they're doing over 225 a year. And we have a steady stream because the whole country now knows here's high volume. We did the same thing with um, the Tufts program, which then moved over to the Leahy program and they're now doing you know, over 100 myectomies a year and NYU as well. But not every program has a really skilled surgeon, so the programs look a little different depending upon the city you're in and the expertise. But bringing together imagers, heart failure docs, interventional cardiologists, electrophysiologists, geneticists, and building teams was critical to the development of the concept of a center of excellence. So then around 2004, five, we started looking saying, you know, the Tufts program was kind of like the new model of an HCM program with this very focused team. And they started to develop out very quickly and they did really well. Other people started calling saying, how do I do that? And I'm like, well, here's what we've done and here's what we're doing. And the first 12 programs that we started working with, they didn't go through an application process. They didn't go through a review process. It was relationship building and talking. Um, Then around 2005, we structured the center program and it continues to evolve today. We want to know who the players are, who the administrators are, does the institution support the programming? Um, Are we able to grow? What kind of support staff are available? How fast can you get an appointment? What's the turnaround time on you know, device implants? Um, do they provide genetic therapy, or I'm sorry, genetic testing options in house? All of those types of questions started to be answered. And now we continue to grow and we want to see health equity represented in all of our centers. So we wanna make sure that the faculty looks like the demographic of the community that they're serving. So we want to see people from all different walks of life on both sides, treating and going for care so that we can all talk together comfortably and really understand each other. So um, centers continue to grow. We're about to announce two more by uh, September. So by September, we'll be at fifty program.
0: Nice, which is nice because depending where you live in the country, some people are a little closer to the centers of excellence and some people are not. And I know we've grown as an organization to where we can assist people in Lori's name and we can get into that when you're ready. But you talk about bringing all these experts together, Lisa. one thing I noticed, I had an echo in a community based hospital and I'm not trying to say anything bad about the community hospital because i eventually got where i needed to be but the way they looked at my echo and the way that my doctors at the center of excellence and i go to cleveland clinic um they saw two different things and it was dramatically little nuances right that changed my treatment can you talk about that They're looking, they're looking at an echogram or an MRI and they look at so many that they just can look right at it and pick it out.
1: I, I think, you know, I just came out back from a meeting of the American society of echocardiography and we had a special meeting just about HCM and what we need to do to improve things there. Um, if you go to a community cardiologist, God bless the community cardiologists. We love and respect you all. However, the echoes that you're going to get there are they are probably taking about 50 images of the heart, which is nice. It's a lot, but with HCM, it's not enough. We need more images of the heart. We need different angles. We need to make sure that we're seeing what we think we're seeing, um, that wall measurements are accurately measured. We want to make sure that the quality of the read is as good as the quality of the image itself. So when you're going to a local community doctor and they're doing the echo in their office and it takes 15 minutes on the table and the doctor looks at it for two minutes and says, yep, we're good. For what he looked at, you probably are. But if we put you through a protocol at an HCM center, they take the equivalent of about 200 pictures. So if you're taking more pictures from more angles, you're going to see more things. Yeah. And HCM has been given over 75 different names over the years because wow. every, every time somebody sees hypertrophy in a different area of the heart, they named it. Okay. So we've got lots of <laughs> names because the heart can look very, very different in, in HCM and all be the same disease process.
0: Would you say the new ones like the apex? or
1: So we couldn't see the apex of the heart in older echocardiograms because there was just, we didn't see it. You couldn't get the good image of the apex. So all of a sudden apical HCM sounds like it's it's popping up everywhere, everywhere right? and everybody yeah. has this new apical HCM. It's not new. Apical HCM has existed probably as long as people have, but we can see it better now because yeah. we have better imaging, not only with echocardiogram, but with MRI. Um, some of the things that we discussed in this meeting um, with the American Echo Society was you know, normal values. Everybody's using the same like normal values, whether you're a small woman or a large man, mm-hmm. there probably needs to be some work in nuancing what normal measurements are based on body mass and gender. And and,
0: and are they and subjective? Those measurements, can they be subjective a little bit or you think they're pretty mm-hmm. precise?
1: So there's, a, so a normal heart wall measurement should be about 1.2 on the high end, but we're using at 1.2 being normal for a four foot 11 woman and a six foot five man. yeah, And that doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Like the rats of the body isn't the same size. Why are we assuming that the heart wall <laughs> is the same right. size in these two different experiences of humanity, right? So th- that's a little tricky, but we know 1.5 or greater measurement anywhere in the left ventricle wall is a diagnosis of HCM. But are you really getting 1.5? Is somebody over measuring, is somebody under measuring? This is where expertise, nuance, and and reproduction of results matters. And when you go to a high-volume center, they know exactly how to measure what to look for, and they know how to tease out obstruction. Obstruction is not always present in a resting state.
0: Right. I think that's important because the conditions under which your tests occur aren't necessarily the conditions you're having symptoms, right? Correct. That's a big deal. Correct. How common is how common is our disease? I know that's changed some over the year. years.
1: So when I started we thought it was one in 500. Um, so we now know because that was based on echo data and here's the easiest way I can explain this to everybody. If you had a TV in 1980 and looked at the picture on that TV, it looked okay. But if you had an HD TV with 5G streaming capacity and the precision of today's TV, you're gonna see a very different image. And that's the difference of echo technology then and now too. So we get much better pictures. So the echo quality that we had when we thought it was one in 500, we weren't seeing the apex so well yet. (laughs) Then we added in MRIs. And then we added in genetic testing. So now we can see who carries the gene, who has MRI positive HCM, who has echo positive HCM. So when you pull all that together, the numbers are going down as close to one in 200 um, worldwide. So we're looking at between one in 200 and one in 500. We kind of, been, excuse me, using the terms uh, and the numbers one in 250, it's not on the the most aggressive edge of diagnostics and it's not on the most conservative, it's kind of in the middle. So we're thinking like 1 in 250, which means there's about 1.3 million people in the United States with diagnosable hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Oh. And there are only about 150,000 of us currently identified and treated.
0: Yeah, and not all of us need new hearts, but No, no. no. That's even smaller number, correct?
1: Yes. So I am a very rare. I'm a very rare. I did not expect to be a very rare, but I'm a very rare. About 5% of people with HCM will move on to transplant. Um, This can happen to the young, middle-aged or older person. Um, We have a couple what I call littles. I know (laughs) kids are kids and I know kids sound you know, so casual, but littles to me, are the, they're little humans, yeah. right? They're littles. Um, So we have a couple littles right now waiting on hearts because theirs are just not good enough to keep them going through adulthood. So um, we have a number of people waiting for transplant right now. It does kind of hold out to about 5% of our population, um, but they're the rares. The yeah. majority will live long, normal lives with their hearts. Our goal is to minimize suffering and burden by enhancing new therapies and ideas and potentially even for some potentially coming up with something that, I use this word very carefully, potentially curative.
0: Well, see, I was gonna ask, is it considered chronic at this point?
1: Yes, we are considered a chronic illness. The heart is the heart is the heart, it's gonna stay as it is. There is some hope that genetic therapies might be able to reverse the course of the disease for some mutations. Um, Those trials are gonna be going on later this year. If you're interested, please reach out to me. I can give you some more information and we can pull all of that together uh, and and get you hooked up with the the programs that are doing those trials. It's really exciting um, that we're at a point where we can maybe talk, some people may be relieved of the burden of disease entirely. Um, But myosin inhibitors have also provided a great deal of improvement in quality of life for patients with obstructive HCM Trials are now underway for the non-obstructed population, and I can see a day where somebody goes through a myectomy to physically correct the anatomy. Um, Sometimes you just need to realign papillary muscles or fix the valve or move other apparatus that are in the heart, and then potentially treat those individuals later with a a form of a myosin inhibitor. Um, Myosin inhibitors help the heart relax better and contract more efficiently. So it's we are living in a really cool time with new therapies that all of our centers around the country are your best access point for these new drugs and these new clinical trials. So there's a lot of cool stuff going on.
0: Yeah. Can we talk about um, genetics testing? Uh, um, I, I, my experience, I've tried to talk to my family about it and I, I can't get a lot of traction with some of them and they have littles. And um, it is a hereditary disease. And just can you touch on that some? I know that that can be a hot, cold issue, but it's important to at least put it on the table.
1: So I will talk about this in two, two ways, genetics and clinical testing. So for years before we had genetic testing, we would just rely upon the echocardiogram an EKG and a checkup with a cardiologist to see if there was anything abnormal present. Um, And that is still a very good path for people to go on if they don't wanna go through genetic testing yet. But genetic testing, if I'm able to identify the gene in Joey or my gene, then I can use that information to screen the rest of the family to see if they carry the same genetic mutation or not. And if you do carry the gene, then we're gonna kick up surveillance and we're gonna watch you closely. If you don't, you don't have to worry about this anymore if you have the gene that runs in your family. Right now, only 40% of those who we test can we find an identifiable genetic mutation that is believed to be causative. Um, 60%, we don't exactly know what's going on. We expect that there's something called polygenetics, meaning more than one gene is present. And when you put them together, two or three or four of those genes together, they become a bad actor and they make the heart too stiff and too, too rigid. Um, and we're still learning about that right now, but in a family who has a diagnosis of one person with HCM, we use genetic testing for the following reasons. Number one, we want to make sure that you're not what we call a mimicker and a mimicker is a disease that looks like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy on imaging, but actually has a different, um, Nidus point, a different beginning, a different disease path that it's following. Dannon's disease is one such disease where it's a lysosomal storage disease that makes the heart look thick. Fabry's disease, again, a storage disorder where the heart can appear to be thick because it's not processing particular um, properties correctly. So the other one would be amyloidosis where the heart looks like HCM, but it's actually ATTR, amyloid, and it has a different starting point. It also, they each all have their own therapeutic pathways. So it's important to know if you belong in one of those, they're very rare, even within the HCM community, they're rare. But if you fall into one of those rares, we can put you on the right path to the right therapies. And if you're a good old fashioned sarcomeric mutation or unknown mutation, we would treat you a different way.
0: If somebody's listening or watching today and they're hearing all these big terms and (laughs) I remember the first time I remembered how to correctly spell hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, I was so excited. But uh, these are big words. What are the what 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 are the symptoms? If you're listening today, I, I know there are different ones, but. If you have certain things, what really should you bring up to your doctor? I mean, again, I heard I have a murmur or I, I would get short of breath, right? Like, especially when I was dehydrated or mowed the yard or took the trash down to the driveway. And I didn't find out till I was 48 years old that I had this problem. So for people that are listening for family members or themselves today, what are some of those red flags that you should have checked out?
1: So I'm going to look at them in two different ways. So there are symptoms and there are signs. So a sign would be a heart murmur present, but not just a murmur. Lots of people have abnormal heart muscle sounds. Okay. So murmur is just saying it doesn't sound like your typical lub-dub, lub-dub, heart, blood comes in, blood goes out. There's something that's impeding blood flow. So that makes it sound different. Yeah. Um, So a murmur can be innocent, truly. (laughs) But until you prove it's innocent, I, I suspect that it's, it's not so innocent. Yeah. So um, the heart murmur is a big sign. Exercise intolerance in an otherwise young, healthy person is another sign that something may not be right. So think about that. Family history of atrial fibrillation, sudden cardiac arrest, early heart failure, transplant. Even if you don't have names to put on the diseases that cause these things, you know, that story that you heard about Uncle Joe who, quote, had a heart attack in his late 30s, early 40s. We don't have heart attacks, myocardial infarctions, but we do have damage to the heart wall muscle that can look like a heart attack on EKG. So we can confuse people sometimes with, with what our symptoms and what our signs are. Um, shortness of breath with or without exercise. Anxiety-like feelings, Like your heart is palpitating really fast and your head is spinning a little bit and you're not quite sure what's going on. You think it's an anxiety attack or a panic attack, but it came on out of nowhere. There was no trigger. And all of a sudden you just have this feeling of dread and you're just like, I'm gonna pass out. This is a very concerning symptom and you wanna talk to your doctor about that right away. Could be an arrhythmia, could just be a run of PVCs, premature ventricular contractions, non-life-threatening, abnormal heartbeats. So there's lots that can go on there. So other things that can happen is you can get just tired a lot. You can't get enough sleep. You might feel chest pressure. It's not your typical in the center of your chest. It could go up into your throat, the bottom of your throat. You can feel like there's like a bump in there and it's pressury to be in your upper shoulders, your neck or your jaw. Women will get chest pain in neck and jaw very frequently and, Still, people don't understand that that could be a cardiac issue. Yeah. So th- those are the big commons. Um, other things can be just this feeling of lightheadedness that can go with the disease. Um, fainting can, oh. can occur in some people.
0: Mine's almost fainting. Like I almost Ear syncope. Fainted. Yes.
1: Fancy words for almost fainting. There are two reasons we faint in HCM. One is hemodynamic. So if you're obstructed and that blood can't leave the chamber properly and it gets stuck, if there's enough of a delay in the blood getting to your brain, your brain could get a signal like, we're not getting any oxygen up here. We're shutting down for right now. And boom, you're down. Um, that's a hemodynamic faint. You tend to feel those coming on and you have a choice. It's sit down or fall down. Right. I highly recommend the sit down part. Yeah. Um, and typically they resolve quickly. You'll have a little sip of water, lay down for five minutes, get up slowly and resume your day, and they typically are fine. That's a hemodynamic faint generally, and you need to discuss your faints with your doctor. The scary, scary faints are the ones where you don't know how you landed on the floor, but you landed there. And you have no recollection, and it's just very quick. And that tends to be more arrhythmic-based. So you want to know what's happening when you're feeling about to faint and you want to talk to your doctor about that because the treatments are very very different. And sometimes if a doctor hears oh I fainted and I have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and you're going to a local guy or girl and you're not consulting with a center of excellence, you could find yourself in the pathway that you might not necessarily belong in.
0: Yeah. If you're having but a that was my mom.
1: Yeah. If you have a hemodynamic mm-hmm. faint, and they put in an ICD to protect you from sudden death because they think that you had an arrhythmic faint. Yeah, that gets a little complicated and you may not need the ICD and you might need to treat your you know, obstruction as a primary issue.
0: What about diet? Because I, I think a lot of times people are there was almost like the shaming when I first learned that I had this problem in the community hospital that. You know, if I would have eaten better and exercised more and done all these things, this could have been prevented. But I'm not sure that that's necessarily true, is it?
1: Yes, no, and maybe. Right. And here's the yes, the no, and the maybe. Diet's always important. We want to maintain a healthy weight. We want to make sure that we're not adding to the burden of disease with things like obesity, diabetes, arthritis, all these other things that can come as a downstream consequence of weight. Um, so we don't want to put weight on because it makes her heart work harder. Yeah. So, does being overweight cause hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? No, it does not. But it doesn't help it either. Right. So we want to try to keep a healthy weight.
0: So we the want- plumbing problem just- that you have, the plumbing problem when that starts getting bad and you have hcm i mean that you're really going to start to see some trouble there i think that's where the diet and the things come together but if you eat the healthiest and you run and you're active and could there's nothing really you can do to change it other than medicine right or surgical outcome just the, the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy part
1: so no You you cannot diet away or exercise away your thick, stiff heart. The problem is in the cardiac sarcomere itself. Ooh, big words. Okay. What the hell am I talking about? (laughs) Inside your heart. So like, let's just, you're looking at a human body. We know where the heart is. Let's go inside the heart. You know, you have four chambers, you have valves, you have papillary muscles, you have chordae tendini, you have all of these pieces of your heart and it beats. That's not where our problem is, it's deeper. So it is believed at this time that the cardiac sarcomere, the contractile protein that tells your heart to contract and relax is abnormal in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We are hyper-engaged and because you are hyper-engaged, all the myosin heads inside that cardiac sarcomere are digging in and they're fighting and they're they're working really hard. So most people have a rowboat for a heart with two oars and they go in the water and they go merrily, merrily, merrily down the stream. And we have a sculling team that has the muscle bound guys that are digging in and they're competing for the Olympic gold all the time. So, so that's where we're different. Bigger. So the, the heart doesn't exactly Stronger. get bigger the cells themselves get a bit stiffer and between the cells you have collagen and that collagen can turn fibrotic and then you can lose a couple cells here and there and they kind of die off and they cause scar I was going to say it's about the scarring yeah so you have this interstitial fibrosis that can occur and then these scars that can occur and No food that you eat is going to change this mechanism inside of the heart itself. Beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, sodium channel blockers, antiarrhythmics. They treat on top of that. The new myosin inhibitors treat the core and they go down into that level, which we never did before. This is a brand new type of med.
0: Hydration can play a part though.
1: Hydration is critical. You want to stay hydrated. If you're, Heart cavity gets dehydrated, it collapses on itself because it doesn't have enough volume. And our hearts are stiff enough as is. So when you're dehydrated, your heart has to work harder. So we want to keep good hydration. So water, 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 and then some more water. And then when you're tired of water, have some more water. Um,
0: Just watch your sodium. There, yeah, exactly. There's so much more we could go into on this only because we've learned over the decades of all the hard work and we've built on everybody's work to get to the point where we are today. But before uh, we wrap up, can, let's let's just end on some positive notes of I some things. Out. Yeah. What, what's coming up? That's exciting for us.
1: So I think what I want to talk about just for a minute is how we've created program channels here at the HCMA. Um, going back to Lisa's HR background, like we have our intake coordinators and we have our navigation calls. So everybody's welcome to call in, they can do an intake, they can become part of the patient registry if they want, they can set up a navigation call. I still, I still personally talk to every person with HCM who calls the office and I hope to be able to continue to do that for some time yet, but we're creating systems that we can push out more education without me having to be on a phone with somebody. So we've got that set up. Um, We have our medical affairs committee operating nicely now um, with some exciting stuff coming out of that soon. We have podcasts, we have webinars, we have educational content, we have the in-person meeting back. We have the Center of Excellence Programming growing. We have the discussion groups growing. Social
0: media ambassadors.
1: Social media ambassadors. They're all new, and Joey might be one of them. And we have all of these new project lines that we want to get out and talk about HCM in bigger and bolder ways. We want to show all the faces of HCM. Everybody's sick of my story. My story's my story. I, I, I was very quiet about my story until it became quite dramatic and I needed a heart transplant. So then I talked about my story a lot, and everybody wants to hear it but it's not about me and my story. It's about families like mine and Joey's story and everybody else's story, which is why we are really doubling down on this ambassador program. We have 24 starting ambassadors for class one. We will add them as we go along and we figure out how to best do it, right? We're building a new program. And I have the most amazing team here at the HCMA. Elena Morgan does, um, she's my assistant director and she's doing her grants and, contract management. Stacy's doing our center of excellence coordination. Linda Montgomery is our client intake coordinator, and she's a patient advocate. And uh, uh, Sabrina, who's out in California, she's part-time, but she does. she's a member of the tribe. Ross Hadley, who is our project manager and keeps all of the pieces of the puzzle together so it doesn't break. Olivia, who is doing our our media and our graphics in-house now. Carolyn, who has been with us for like, I don't know, 18 years now and she does all of our membership packets and we have a new magazine coming out. We do. Um, we do, it should be out um, for October. Um, I'm putting the final touches on it. So instead of you guys getting handouts and like one pagers in your new membership kits, we're gonna have a twice a year magazine. And there's going to be some stories of patients and some experiential stuff um, and some of our services and some education um, and some goofy stuff, too, because it's kind of like People magazine for people with HCM. Um, So we've got programs. We have project lines. We are trying to do more in health equity. We want to find more black and brown families with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We want to make sure that we are inclusive to all communities, no matter what your belief system is. Your heart is your heart we're here to take care of the heart how you want to do that well that's called shared decision making and you can make some choices there but we want to make sure everybody has the information to make the best choices for themselves that are in line with their wants needs and that of their families
0: one thing i like to look at as a barometer of how we're headed is people putting money into support, what we're doing, and we're getting more sponsors because these stories we're sharing and information are important and people are really starting to recognize that. So our sponsors and those sponsorships are very important for what we do.
1: They're critically important. And I'm glad you brought it up because I do wanna talk a little bit about uh, the, the nasty reality of funding. Okay, so I started this with literally nothing. No, no angel donor, no sponsor. Uh, We were a young couple with a new baby. My sister had just died. I've been in medical debt since I can ever remember. And I had nothing except for my brain to work with, which, by the way, was damaged from the stroke. So I'm starting literally not not with my kitchen table. Cause I had to move to the kitchen table. I had a little table next to my <laughs> and then I grew up to the kitchen table and then we moved and then I got a desk. Um, and we started literally with nothing. And for many years we operated on under $250,000 a year. Wow. Which is crazy.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I took a massive pay cut to go from HR to be here full time. Um, I gave up benefits. I gave up all that kind of stuff. And I said, I have a dream. I need to do this. This is what my life is supposed to be about. And my husband didn't kick me out or divorce me, so that's a good <laughs> sign. Um, nice. And he's been on the board ever since. Nice. And we've grown. And when we look at sponsors and our relationships, it's interesting. If you told me that I would be working very closely with not only big pharma but like the biggest pharma and at a very high level within the organization. I would have laughed and said they would never allow me into those places because I'm just a Jersey girl who doesn't know how to, you know, sometimes hold a thought. Everything's
0: just
1: (laughs) just out there. Like, how do I feel? Do you really want to know? Ask.
0: Don't ask unless you want to know.
1: So, you know, there's there's things that corporations want and need to succeed in their own endeavors, but they're not always aligned with us. So I make sure that we stay on the right side of our line and they stay on their side. And there are projects that we won't partner on with them because we don't feel that it is genuine to a patient advocacy organization. We will not accept more than 24.9% of our budget from any one funder because we don't want to be owned by anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're keeping our numbers um, growing we're bringing more people to the table and yes that means we're able to get more money per sponsorship from some of our corporate sponsors but what does money equal it means services for you it means i can hire a new patient navigator it means i can hire somebody to take care of a particular project line um, i meant i failed to mention julie russo earlier when i'm talking i know about, i was, yeah. was gonna you. You asked me a question and then you like
0: we forgot We're like uh, shiny objects and we get distracted. we, get distracted we, love, Julie. Yeah. we
1: love Julie. Um, and Julie is our volunteer coordinator. And we have so many wonderful people that want to donate time and resources, but figuring out what jobs to give them and how to align that and how to bring teams together yeah. from volunteers, that's a whole workflow in and of itself. It takes time, it takes money, it takes knowledge, experience, and and understanding the uniqueness of the disease. Like when somebody says, I wanna volunteer and I'm gonna do this group, but I just landed in the hospital, I'm in AFib, and I'm gonna be here for a couple of days, I can't do it. We don't want those people to feel like, oh, you can't volunteer because you might be sick a day. We like to have a second in place for that person. So we've teamed up our discussion group leaders. So if they're having a bad day, their their partner can help. Um, So we have to think of all of those things as we're developing volunteer opportunities And as we work with our sponsors, what's right, what's not right. You said something as we started this, you'd like to report and tell the truth. Yes. I like to be transparent. Yes. Um, I take the responsibility of the finances incredibly seriously. Like I just bought this new platform, but I'm going to we may pivot all of our stuff to here rather than zoom, because this may be more efficient and we might do our webinars here and I might save a couple bucks by doing it. So you want to make sure that you're being a good steward of all of the, the resources that we have and that we're being really respectful of any dollar anybody gives us.
0: Yep. And one other thing, I know we're short on time, but I just want to, I mentioned it because I'm so proud of you for getting us to this point but we're not it's not just the money that we've gotten to help advance us and our cause it's also the seat at the table at some of these humongous medical discussions where we were underrepresented or not even rep, not even in the room and now we're at the table and part of the of the discussion and I think that's important to highlight.
1: We have some very unique opportunities coming up in a whole different space that I've always wanted to be in because I think we could do so much good here. Um, I have, I'm working on relationships with two major health insurance companies and if, okay, so HCM patients, we are everywhere. We sit at every table and every type of work in this country and beyond. And when you get the right people who happen to hold the right titles and happen to have a disease that you're representing, and they say, I want to use my voice to help because I'm in this position now. And I have one of those people in in a very large insurance company who we're going to work with. And then I have another relationship with another payer system that has a center that's going to be coming into system. And we want to help them take their own patients and get their patients to their own center and create systems to do that. Um, There are a lot of HCM patients that don't really understand what having HCM means. Yeah. And they so many times, and you've seen it in the, in the social media threads that we run um, people will say things like, well, seven years ago, my doctor told me my heart was a little bit thick but it was really strong, so I was okay, and that's what I heard. And now I'm having these symptoms, and I realized that that really thick, strong heart was not necessarily the best news I could have gotten that day, but it took me four years to realize it. So people who have a, a definition of a disease, but they don't understand what it means yet, we can engage those people at a different level if we're working through the payer, the health insurance company. Because these patients are much more likely to have services that are not maybe mess, meant for HCM, and we can save money in the system by making sure people don't get inappropriate testing yeah. and really optimize outcomes and quality of life by making sure they get to the right places at the right time.
0: I want to thank you for the conversation today. Thanks for letting me sit over here and, <laughs> and and ask every random thing that pops into my head. I really do appreciate it. It was fun trying out this platform today. Yeah. I look forward always, Lisa, to talking with you because I feel like when I'm in the room with you, I'm fighting the good fight. I'm just happy that you've accepted me into your group of people that are, are doing the fight. And so thank you.
1: Well, thank you for being here. It's kind of weird being on this side of a podcast. <laughs> I did do another podcast a couple weeks ago that I need to promote a little on our channel. Some really cool guys from a group called Sick Boys Podcast. So I would encourage you all to go look up Sick Boys and they, we have an interesting conversation. If you get to watch the video thread, I freak them out because I bring my heart out and I show them and I didn't tell them in advance. So if you want to see three guys be like, what was that? <laughs> um it was really quite cute, That's and I'm going to be doing another one on nonprofit leadership in in a week or so. So we're trying to spread the word in different arenas, and we have so much coming up. and I hope you all sign up for the annual meeting in October. Joey will be the MC for the evening event, so make sure that you all sign up and come out and have some fun with us. We have got some good sponsorships coming in for the meeting, and the final agenda should be ready next week. It should have been ready three weeks ago, but I've been too busy. and Hopefully, you can all come out and join us in Mariestown, New Jersey, on October 21st. First, and we have a really robust conversation coming up, including a lot of information on clinical trials, and what's happened and what's going on and how you can get involved. We're gonna move this together faster If we all are on the same page so come out and get on the page with us there will not be a virtual people keep asking me the cost of putting on meetings today is very expensive and it almost doubles when you put the virtual components in if you're going to do it well so there might be some video content after the meeting but try to be in the room because you get so much out of being in the room with this amazing group of people.
0: It's a good community if you're affected to be a part of. And, you know, it's it's kept me going and made me want to fight hard. No matter how my story ends in the world, know that I was part of something that made a positive impact. That's how I feel we are as an organization. And I, I hope folks will continue to support us and continue to support the cause.
1: I hope so too joey thanks for the time today and letting me be on the other side of the podcast which was a little unusual but great we were trying to do this in three platforms and see how it worked we were on facebook page our private group as well as twitter and this is our first video on twitter so hello twitter i hope you're doing well out there twitter but otherwise thank you all for joining us today for another episode of tales from the heart Featuring Joe and Graham.
0: And Lisa, thank you so much. And everybody have a great weekend. And we'll see you next week with another podcast.